So welcome everyone to the fourth session in this fast-paced jaunt through folklore studies. Today we're going to be focusing on a really powerful question that Alan Dundies had asked way back in 1977, who are the folk? Uh, in other words, what do we mean by the first part of our good Saxon compound folklore? Uh, what we're going to see is that for a long time, scholars had considered the folk to be rural, illiterate, simple-minded peasants, people who are not sophisticated, not highly educated, not rich, not progressive. Nowadays, of course, we work with a radically different idea of the folk as being any group of people whatsoever who use and share items of folklore. This includes you and me, your family, my family, your friends, my friends, your teachers, my teachers, the Prime Minister of Canada, every single person you can think of. The plan's going to be to first see why people used to think of the folk in the kind of pejorative way that they did, then talk about how uh, this essay by the late great folklorist Alan Dundies in the 1970s changed the way that the whole field would forever answer this fascinating question, who are the folk? Now, even today, I have to say most of us, when we hear the word folk or folklore, kind of automatically think of uh, kind of rustic, old-fashioned, rural communities. Um, this is actually part of a baggage of the 19th century way of thought that has led to uh, us thinking in this way. The academic study of folklore first began in the 19th century in Europe, uh, and at that time, European scholars took the folk to mean the illiterate peasants, the simple, unrefined sectors of 19th century European society, which was rapidly industrializing and modernizing. Scholars like to compare this class of European society with two other groups that they called the primitives or the savages of non-European societies, especially the ones that were, of course, located in Asia, in Africa, and in, North, in the Americas, uh, the indigenous communities. So from this kind of extremely derogatory point of view, the folk were the illiterate and illiterate society, the classes who have been least affected by education, who have least shared in progress. The English mythologist Andrew Lang, uh, in fact, called the folk the non-progressive classes in a progressive people. The idea basically was, uh, uh, this idea of the folk was basically a part of a very popular theory in the 19th century called the unilinear evolutionary theory of uh, cultural evolution. The idea was a kind of an extension of Darwin's theory of natural biological evolution to the idea of culture. The basic idea goes, uh, I mean, I should say it's thoroughly outdated now, um, uh, but the idea is that the human culture progresses in one direction over time from primitive to savage to civilized, and the different societies around the world have progressed on the same trajectory at different rates. Today, uh, we should and we do tend to think of culture a lot differently, but in the 1800s, this was kind of the standard way that Europeans explained how, how come cultures look to be at different levels of evolution around the world, and of course, Europe saw itself as being the most advanced from the Europe-centric perspective. And so according to an influential anthrop anthropologist named E.B. Tyler, folklore is a survival of the primitive or savage stage in the context of civilized European cultures of the present day. Tyler called the folk the primitives in our midst, which just sounds awful to say. Uh, but they were serious about it. And 19th century European thinkers defined the folk to be the kind of opposite of themselves, the, the progressive elite of uh, European society, the urban, the educated, the scientific, the literate. 
Now, what's the problem with this kind of thinking? Well, hopefully it's obvious. Uh, For one, what it does is to create a false dichotomy between the elite versus the folk as social groups, uh, rather than focusing on the cultural processes. Uh, In reality, everyone uses folklore, even people who call themselves elite. Uh, Again, it's how an item of culture spreads from person to person with tradition and resonance that makes something an item of folklore. It's not the class or the educational level or the sophistication of the people who are using it. The other problem with this old, outdated idea of the folk is that it leads to a false conclusion that as society is going to get more and more scientific, more urban, more educated, that folklore will naturally die out. Of course, as we know, new folklore is being created on the internet every single minute, in subcultures, uh, in families, groups of friends, even in a classroom. Um, So there's little to no danger of folklore ever dying out, although certain forms will get Uh, less and less frequent. So if this 19th century idea of the folk as illiterate, backward peasants is so problematic, what's a new way that we could think about the folk? Well, in 1965, uh, Alan Dundee's did just this by introducing a brand new concept that he called the folk group. Uh, His approach to the problem was actually quite brilliant. Uh, So if I can take a moment to sort of honor one of my teachers, let me explain a bit about who Alan Dundee's was. Uh, Dundee's was one of the most esteemed and also one of the most controversial folklorists of our time. For over 40 years, he taught folklore at UC Berkeley. He was one of my advisors. He was also the teacher of a number of scholars that we're going to be reading in the class, like Giren Narayan or Tim Tangerlini. Uh, During his lifetime, Dundee's published over 70 articles and 12 full-length books, believe it or not, many of which have become classics in the field. Uh, His perhaps his single greatest contribution to folklore studies, though, was to rethink what it means to be the folk um, and and instead urging us to think of the folk group. Uh, So let's just start by quoting him. The term folk, Dundee said, can refer to any group of people whatsoever who share at least one common factor. This common factor can be anything, an occupation, language, religion, nation, city, province, neighborhood, family, race, caste or class school, college, university, a club, a sports team, the military, like Army, Navy, or Air Force. It can be sexual minorities, for example. It could be video gamers, online communities on Reddit or 4chan. Uh, Even all of us in this Zoom course uh, are basically going to be a folk group. Basically, a folk group is any group of people that shares folklore with one another. Uh, in theory, Dundee said, a folk group must be at least two persons, can, but can be as big as the nation. I say it can even be bigger now, right, with the internet. Uh, what, kind of groups have, what kind of groups could have two people? Maybe think of partners, right, boyfriend, girlfriend, or boyfriend, boyfriend, uh, who share, like, nicknames for each other or cutesy little ways to say, I love you, uh, some things that only the two partners the, would know about. Uh, maybe we can sh- share some of these in class. It's always embarrassing, but always kind of fun. Uh, other small groups are things like families. Family lore is often a really rich area to study, and you'll probably be doing some of that. Uh, maybe you can think of people living on the same street, right? Uh, neighbors. Um, or people working in an office together who share traditions that at lunchtime or barbecues that are kind of idiosyncratic to their office. Uh, here's some other fun facts about folk groups. First of all, a member of a large group like an ethnic group or a city or a nation, they obviously won't know all the other members of their folk group. Uh, He or she would also not know every single item of folklore that belongs to that group. 
uh, but they will know a core set of folklore items that they all share with one another. And often, in fact, folklorists spend a lot of time identifying this kind of common core culture of a folk group. Uh, a person can belong to more than one group at the same time. This is in contrast to, say, something like an ethnic uh, c uh, group or a race, which we usually think of as discrete or kind of like hard-coded on the physical bodies of individuals. That's one of the problems of race, in fact. Um, you're bore, you are what you're born as, and you can't do anything about it, right? Um, but you, in terms of folk groups, though, you can belong to many different folk groups all at the same time. Uh, folk groups can overlap with each other. Items of folklore can be shared across group boundaries, even if the two groups themselves don't really mix or associate with each other. It's because of common individuals that the cultures can spread. Here's another fun fact. In contrast to the model of elite versus folk, folk groups are dynamic and not static. What does that mean? It means that the membership of folk groups is always changing since it's not just defined by your color of your skin, your language, your class, your educational level, if you can read or not, that kind of thing. Instead, since folk groups are defined by the folklore itself, the groups change as more and more folk culture is shared. Now, you might be thinking, hey, this all sounds great. Uh, this is dynamic, but what is this dynamic definition of folk groups? How does it improve over that old static idea of the folk as illiterate peasants? Well, one thing it, it does is it kind of helps us to get rid of the derogatory attitude towards the folk. Uh, folk groups can be any group, any social group that say, shares folklore. There are no restrictions, right? <clears throat> can be urban or rural, literate or illiterate, sophisticated or rustic, young or old, rich or poor, r religious or secular, high or low, right? Basically, as social creatures, all of us are always part of several different folk groups at the same time. Uh, this new definition also helps to avoid a derogatory attitude towards the folk cultures. Folklore has a cultural value in our world. It's the glue that holds communities together, helps to shape their social identity, and to articulate the anxieties that they have, uh, what they're worried about, what they're afraid of. At the same time, all these colorful songs, stories, jokes, slang, proverbs, they're also carriers of an ethos, a worldview of that folk group, the values and ide ideas that characterize themselves as a community. Finally, since new folk groups get formed on the fly, basically whenever folklore gets shared between people, uh, it, it has, there's a power to folklore to help us transcend all the bitter and divisive social boundary lines that have caused so much intolerance, hatred, conflict, strife between groups. The best way to understand each other, I think, is to share our folklore because it's fun, it's meaningful, it's often irreverent, honest, fresh, and it's basically tailor-made to, to be passed on from one another, uh, one person to another. So with this dynamic picture of folk groups in mind, combined with the idea of folklore as a cultural process that we learned last week, right, and all the stuff about context and genre that we discussed, uh, in the previous session, I think it's now time, believe it or not, uh, to start going out and getting your hands dirty and see, exploring the wild world of folklore. There's just one more concept that we need to go over first. Uh, actually, two more concepts, and these are the very important ideas of authenticity and performance. And this is what we're going to tackle in our next segment. So let's take a little break here, and I'll see you in a moment. Music